Good morning. Let's uh, go in our Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 9. And uh, we're going to start reading at verse 10, continuing our uh, study of Luke. And as we know, uh, you guys uh, sit for my words, but we stand for God's words. So let's please stand for the reading of God's word. Before we read, uh, just let me make us aware that uh, today we uh, have the Lord's table prepared for us. Uh, this is a meal that uh, God asks us to eat. He, he, it, it's, it's a gospel meal. We don't just hear the gospel, but Jesus gave us a meal so that we could eat it, literally take it in. So at any point today, um, during, my ga- during the sermon or whatever, if you want to just uh, get up and, and, and take communion... Lord's Table, Eucharist, whatever you call it, um, please uh, just feel right at home to do so. Okay, Luke chapter 9, starting with verse 10. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. If you were here last week, uh, this was kind of a high-five moment. Jesus sent out the 12, and they basically, Jesus gave them the keys to the kingdom and said, go, uh, preach my gospel, unleash my authority in the world. So when the t- apostles returned from this, they reported to Jesus what they had done, and they took with, and he took them with him, and they withdrew. Literally means they retreated by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. The crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who needed healing. Then late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. He replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, We only have five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy food for all this crowd because there were about 5,000 of them there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And the disciples did so, and everyone sat down, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He blessed and he broke. It's literally how it reads. He blessed and he broke. And then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And they ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of pieces that were left over. Quite a story. This is God's word. You can be seated. This is probably one of the most famous stories in the Gospels, and it's, it, it's of utmost significance. And I'm not just saying that to try to uh, grab your attention this morning, uh, but besides Jesus' death and resurrection, this is the only story that is included in all four Gospels. And I want us to think about that, because Jesus' birth is only in two of the Gospels, as significant as as that was. Even those resurrection miracles, like the the raising of Lazarus, is only in John's Gospel. Uh, The raising of Jairus' daughter is only in Luke's Gospel. But this story, 
the, the, the gospel writers could not not include it. And I think part of uh, the reason why it's so important to them, I think it's right in our text, even though we didn't read it. But look at verse 9, the verse right before what we read. Herod is perplexed. And he basically asks a question. Who is Jesus? Who is this? That's Herod's question. Who is this I hear about? Answer. Look at verse 20. Peter answered. God's Messiah. God's King. And then sandwiched in between this is this story of the feeding because I think this story uh, flushes out why Jesus is God's king, God's Messiah. That's what I'm hoping to show you this morning. Let's start with verse 10. And in verse 10, it starts with the fact that Jesus and his disciples withdrew. And I said that word literally means to retreat. Why are they retreating? Well, they just did a major offensive, if you think about it. Um, He just sent his 12 into all the Galilean villages, unleashing and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And then when you look at the verses I just showed you in verse 9, to the Herods of the world, this offensive is offensive to Herod. And anyone with a following to the Herods of the world is a threat. So what does Herod do with threats? Well, what did he do with John the Baptist who had a following? Killed him. And then if you look at verse 7, he, Herod thinks Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. So he's killed John the Baptist once. He wants to kill Jesus. Now, if you're thinking, well, Jesus, what's wrong? Why are you afraid of dying? Why are you afraid of Herod? Why are you retreating? I want you to see the guts of Jesus. And uh, I'm going to try to show you this by using uh, my sketch pad, something I'm not very good at, but something Neil Martin was very good at. And if he can do it, I can do it. (laughs) So I have mine on. Am I on? Okay, good. Can you see that? What is that? See a Galilee. Boy, that's not very clear, is it? Um, Oh, man, this is going to be fun. (laughs) If you want to know why I'm nervous this morning, it's because I'm trying to use this thing. Okay. Is this thing actually drawing? Okay. Oh, yeah, look at that. Holy cow, this actually works. What did I just draw? A triangle. That's where Jesus does most of his ministry, a large majority of it, in that little vicinity right there, probably five by three miles. Um, This is Tiberias. This is Herod's capital city. I want you to take note of this mountain here, Mount Arbel. Because Mount Arbel stands in between Tiberias, where Herod's capital city is, and the triangle where Jesus does much of his ministry. The reason I want to show you this is because 
I think you think you're looking at this massive body of water. Uh, let me show you what this looks like in real life. <laughs> I'm kind of proud of myself right now. <laughs> okay, you can't see that this clearly, but you can see it good enough. This right here is modern-day Tiberias, which in Jesus' day is Herod's capital. This right here is Mount Arbel. And starting right here and going off the picture is the triangle. In other words, when crowds of thousands of people gather, Herod can see that. Jesus is doing his ministry right under Herod's nose all the time. The guy has chutzpah. He has guts. And he knows God's kingdom is trampling on Herod's kingdom. And he knows that Herod knows that. I want you to see just the guts of Jesus. But now he's in a little bit of retreat mode. And... uh, I pieced all the details together because I want to know where do he retreat. Well, he, he starts in Bethsaida, and then other gospel accounts says that he redrew, withdrew to a remote place. That's actually in our text. Um, and then it also, in another gospel account, says he retreated into the hill country outside of Bethsaida. Well, today we know what that hill country is called. It, it's called the Golan Heights. It's, it's in our news all the time. It's this highly contested area. But in Jesus' day, this is what we know. This is where the Jewish zealots lived. And this is where I want to just say a few things about the zealots, because the zealots are part of our gospel story. Two of the disciples were were zealots. One was called a zealot, and Judas Iscariot was probably part of that sickery, intense zealot movement. The zealots are Jews. They're called zealots because they have a fire in their gut. They have an intense passion for God. They have an intense passion for God's word. And they have an intense passion for God's kingdom. However, their understanding of the kingdom is a little bit different than our understanding of the kingdom. And if anyone remembers Neil Martin, wow, Neil's getting a lot of uh, press uh, today. But he had a definition of the kingdom of God. Does anybody remember it? God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing. And that was their definition of the kingdom. God's people, Israel, in God's place, Israel, under God's rule, whoops. All this other stuff is coming to fruition in their minds, but... We're not under God's rule. We're under Rome's rule. We're not under God's king, Messiah. We're under Rome's king, Herod. And they hated Rome. And you need to know why the zealots 
hated Rome. They hated Rome because Rome was arrogant. Rome was pushy. Rome pushed their worldview and their values on the people that they ruled. And the Jews detested everything about Rome. They detested their worldview. They detested Rome's hedonism. that, That life is all about me. All about my comfort. All about my pleasure. They detested this. They detested all of Rome's trinkets and goodies, the theater, the arenas, um, the spas, all these things that further made life all about me. And they felt like all this stuff did is it just further entrenched people in the world and took people away from God. And Rome could never understand this because Rome looked at itself as the world's great benefactor. I mean... Why don't you like us, Israel? Why do, what, what, what are we doing wrong here? Don't you like all the good stuff we give you? It's still that way in that part of the world. That's how the world looks at us. We don't really want your McDonald's and your Starbucks. Now, with the exception of the Herodians, the Herodians are secular Jews, and the Sadducees, The Sadducees were the temple priests, this elite class of people. Both those groups of people were in bed with Rome for for their own personal stake. But every other Jew besides these had zealotry in their blood. It was just how far are you going to take this? Are we to pay taxes to Rome? Well, most of the Jews, like the Pharisees, said, yeah, we can pay taxes to Rome. The zealots said, are you kidding We're not paying taxes to Rome. That's not where our loyalties are. The question was pushed further. Are we to take up the sword against Rome? Of course, the Pharisees and and, and many of the Jews of that day were pacifists. They said, hey, let's just be about the book. Let's be about God's word. Let's live obedient to God and let God take care of the Romans. The zealots, on the other hand, said, no! We need to take up the sword. And don't just think that this is just this nationalism that, that, that's, that's burning inside of them. They're looking at the book. They're looking at the Bible. They're looking at the story. They see biblical heroes like Caleb, Joshua, David. They see how these men had intense passion for God and how at times they took up the sword in God's name, whether it was Goliath or Philistines. They even saw people like Moses and Elijah who picked up the sword and even killed their own people. Can someone look up Psalm 139, 21 and 22? Say, I got it if you want that one. We're going to go back to this a little bit. Someone who can stand and read loud. Someone get Psalm 106, 30 to 31. And someone get Psalm 149, verses 5 through 9. Okay, we'll see if we've got any takers right now. Look at this beautiful sunny day, shining all that sunlight in here. Come on, are we alive and awake or not? Okay, Psalm 139, 21 and 22. Do I have a taker? Okay, please, as loud as you can, Rick. They read stuff like this. This is David. 
One of my favorite Psalms, 139, but we stop. We don't like to get to this verse where David says, Do I not hate those who hate you? Who has uh, Psalm 106, 30 through 31? Thank you. Okay, do you guys remember the story? Then Phineas stood up and intervened in the plague. It's when he took the sword and put it through a Jewish man who is copulating with a pagan prostitute in God's temple courts. And he said, enough is enough. Boom. What did God say about that? And that was credited to him as righteousness. That's the same thing that was said about Abraham and Abraham's faith. It was credited to Abraham as righteous. This is said about Pinehas for what he did with the sword. Psalm 149, 5 to 9. Okay. Okay, let the saints rejoice. This is a text about the saints. Keep going. To the glory of all the saints. And what's in between what the saints do? Praise of God on their lips and a sword in their hands. They're reading this. And that's why in their mind, Messiah is going to be, he's going to be a deliverer. He's going to be a rescuer. He's going to be one like David. He's going to have blood on his hands. He's going to be this guy who's going to come and save them from their enemies, namely from Romans. That's Messiah to them. And so this, this, this is a little bit of a flavor of the zealots. Galilee is zealot country, especially when you start getting into those remote regions, kind of just like the Michigan militia. Um, and I don't know if it's to that extent, but the, listen to what Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, writing during the time of Jesus, given a history of the history of the Jews. He writes this about the Galileans of Jesus' day. He says the Galileans are conditioned for war from their infancy. That's what the Galileans are. Conditioned for war from their infancy and have always been very numerous. This territory has never been short on men of courage or lacked a large number of them. Why am I saying all this? Because much of my life I read this story and I just pictured this nice little picnic that Jesus was putting on with, you know, red, white checkered tablecloths all out and green grass and families gathering and birds and butterflies and, and food. Verse 14 says there are 5,000 men. And some think this is just the count of heads of households, which would mean that there are 20,000 impassioned Galileans <laughs> that Jesus is gathered with here. Or... It could mean just what it says. There were just 5,000 men. This was just a gathering of men. Of revolutionaries. Makes me wonder, is Herod looking out of his palace that day? Now the only thing the zealot movement lacked was a king, a messiah. 
Mark's account provides another amazing detail that kind of speaks to this. Mark says Jesus was literally cut to the heart when he saw all the crowds rushing to him. And he he concluded these, these people, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And see, when we hear that clause, sheep without a shepherd, we kind of think, well, a church without a pastor, that's kind of how we look at that. But shepherd is their word for king. And even Jesus concluded they're, 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 a, they're a people without a king. And what does Jesus do with, with this great crowd of people? We'll look at verse 11 of our text. <laughs> Proclaims the kingdom of God. That's what they're fired up about, the kingdom of God. You don't think Jesus had these guys in the palm of his hand? Boy, I wish I knew what he taught that day. The thing is, we can have a good idea. Just go read the Sermon on the Mount. I think the Sermon on the Mount is, is, is basically the expression of the kingdom of heaven. And I can't help but wonder, did Jesus all of a sudden say, hey, if a Roman soldier comes and asks you to take his pack one mile, you look at him and say, no, I'll go two. If someone hits you on the right cheek, You know the rest of it. Turn your other. You know with your enemies? Pray for them. Bless them. Lift them up. Oh, I'd just love to know what Jesus taught that day. Verse 12 says a crisis starts to develop. The disciples are kind of the first to speak into this. I like this. This is these guys being men. Uh, we're running out of food. And we're in a very remote place here, Jesus. We need to do something kind of quick. Jesus' response, verse 13, you get them some food. The emphasis in the original language is on the you. You get them some food. And I like the disciples' response, especially when I piece all the Gospels together. Um, basically what they say is, Jesus, look, man, we, we, we practically have nothing here. You're basically asking us to do the impossible. I hear Jesus just saying, that's right. I am asking you to do, to do the impossible. And when are you guys going to figure this whole thing out that it's about trusting me to actually do the impossible? And I want to put that shoe on my foot. I want to put that shoe on our foot. When are we going to start to believe that the kingdom of God is all about what's humanly impossible? That God loves to do so much with so little. Do you believe right now that God can take two lo- or five loaves and two fishes and feed a multitude? Do you believe it? That God is going to take the the small things and the weak things of this world to accomplish his great work of redemption. Do we believe that God can use this itty-bitty church called Crossroads and do an amazing thing? Like maybe even bring Grand Rapids to its knees before God. Do we think thoughts like that? Are we going for things like that? Ephesians 3 verse 20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think. He 
goes way beyond even our dreams, our big dreams. He is able to do far more abundantly than we are able to ask or think according to the power at work within us. The power is not us. It's not anything that you and I do in our own strength. It's him. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. I think there's something that gets lost in this story. Jesus speaks very little in this story, but look at Jesus' words. You get them some food. I want us to see this. Here Jesus is with a bunch of revolutionaries. And if you don't know about Jesus, that he himself is a revolutionary who's unleashing a revolution none like the world has ever seen. If you don't know that about Jesus, then you don't know him. Because Jesus is going to ignite a revolution that's not just going to shake Israel. It's going to shake the whole world. And it's still shaking the world 2,000 years later. He is a revolutionary. But what we need to see that what's at the heart of Jesus' revolution is something as basic as food. And providing food for the hungry. I could help but think about this. I mean, there are revolutionaries even that exist today in parts of the world. And they still gather in remote places. And they gather in remote places for things like arms distribution distribution and weapons training. And Jesus gathers in a remote place for food distribution. Because at the heart of Jesus' movement is food. It's food and feeding the hungry. And I know what so many of you want to do right now is you want to spiritualize this. And the reason you want to spiritualize this is say, no, this isn't really about material food. It's about spiritual food. The reason we want to do that is because then we can excuse ourselves from the material aspects of this and the material aspects of our world right now. We can excuse ourselves from the fact that 805 million people struggle with hunger every day. That's three times the amount of people that live in America. That 1.2 billion people, that's four times the people that live in America, still live in extreme poverty. Extreme poverty is defined by $1.25 per day. And that every year, 2.6 million children die as a result of not getting enough food in their tummies. 2.6 million. Jesus says, You get them some food. This is a material command. That has to do with the material reality. Because God isn't a Greek. He doesn't defy, divide the world into a spiritual reality and a material reality. God is the creator of the whole world. And he cares about the whole. And I, he's still saying this to his, his followers. Feed them. Because feeding hungry people is at the heart of his revolution. King Jesus is about banquets. He's about parties. He's about food. And to me, this is part of the radical nature of Jesus' revolution. The kingdom of heaven is a party. 
And I'll tell you, this isn't something new in the Bible. I mean, this is God's heart from the beginning. God's about food. That's why I love the fact that we didn't even plan this today. We're not good enough to plan things like this and orchestrate things. Uh, like where we're going to have these on your chair about family meals. This is a big deal to us. This isn't just about food, but this is about food and God's people gathered around food. We have eight host homes. We care about parties. We care about banquets. We care about coming together to eat good food. Why? Because God's a foodie. He is. You know how I know that? Let's start right in the beginning of the Bible. Genesis. When God creates the world. Creation, you know what it ends with? A menu. God tells him, I made all of this stuff for you, Adam, for good food. You know where the whole thing's going? The whole story's going? To a banquet. A messianic banquet. A feast. Lachaim. To life. And we're stuck in the middle of creation and new creation. And in the middle, people are hungry. And Jesus is still saying to his disciples, feed them. That's why when I go to Jordan and I see Syrian and Iraqi refugees flocking to churches for food, it's, it's, it's beautiful to see this church in Mifrat, call, literally called Crossroads, called Crossroads, a church of less than 100 people feeding 10,000 Muslim refugees. Think about that. Dan Pearson part of our own church, who does food share. I'm telling you, it's one of the purest expressions of the kingdom of heaven in Grand Rapids. And if you don't know him, get to know him. And if you don't know what he's doing, get, find out. He is feeding hungry people all over Grand Rapids. God gives him food, he gives it away. God gives him food, he gives it away. God gives him food, he gives it away. This is God's heart. We better not spiritualize this. Only. Another thing we need to see, though, is that this miracle begins with what? What they have. In fact, in in, in Mark's gospel account, Jesus actually asks the question. He says, what do we have? They tell him, we have five loaves, two fish. That's our question. What do we have today? I'll tell you what, we have a heck of a lot more than five loaves and two fish. And some of us are, are, are sitting around waiting for the miracle, and we're praying for the miracle, not knowing that God has already done the miracle in our lives. Just look at all of our abundance. And if you don't look at your abundance today and all the resources that we have together, which is a lot more than five loaves and two fish, then don't you dare say you did that. God did that. God gave you that. That's a miracle. How are we using our abundance to feed hungry people? Ouch. That one hurts me. It hurts. 
Now, what I want us to see in this miracle, because it is more than material, in this miracle, Jesus is actually a, a master artist, and he's painting a picture, just like with the parables. He's, he, he, he paints pictures. It, it's truth through story and picture. So through this, this picture, and we don't quickly see it because we're not immersing ourselves in the Old Testament story, but they can see it because Jesus, through this miracle, just painted a, a picture of an important part of their story. Because verse 12 tells us where they are. It's, in Greek, it's aramis tapos. And every time aramis tapos is used in the New Testament, it's translated desert, wilderness, Then look at verse 14. What does Jesus ask them to do? He asked them to break into companies of 50 because this is exactly what Moses did with the people when they were in the wilderness. He grouped them into companies of 50 because when you're in the wilderness, it's a dangerous, risky, deadly place. You can't go at it alone. And not only that, what was their struggle when they were in the wilderness? It was food. Are we going to have enough to eat or are we going to die? In fact, I love how this is uh, expressed in Psalm 78, verse 19. They asked God, God, can you prepare a banquet in the wilderness? And what did God do? God fed them with manna from heaven. And then after that, God fed them. He gave them his instruction. He gave them his word. God fed them both materially and God fed them spiritually. And then in Deuteronomy 8, God connects these two, the material and the spiritual. When he says to them, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from my mouth. In other words, God is saying, as much as our physical bodies need food today, our souls, our hearts, our lives are that Desperate for God's word and his instruction. And I want to know this. I want my heart to know this. That unless I get God's word in the center of my being, I'm going to starve to death. Now the way Jesus actually communicates this in the miracles, he doesn't just take bread and fish, but he takes five and two. Because numbers to them are are loaded with meaning. And five symbolizes Torah, God's word. Two symbolizes God's commands, the two tablets, his, his, his instruction. So Jesus isn't just coming to feed them with bread and fish, but he's feeding them also with five and two, with those spiritual realities, God's word, God's instruction, God's manna that their soul needs to live. And how many basketfuls are left when the miracle's done? Twelve. Just think about that picture. Twelve basketfuls of bread. 12 represents Israel. Israel, this is what you are to be. You are to be a people, a basket, just full of God's bread. And some people say to me when I say this, well, if, 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 if God really meant this, then why didn't he just say it? Well, he did. He just didn't say it as a Westerner. He said it as a Jew. They caught it. And you know how I, ca- I know they caught it? Because when I read John, John's gospel after this miracle, John 6 verse 14 said, they wanted to make Jesus king that day by force. 
Here's what they didn't understand. As Jesus painted this masterpiece, they didn't understand who Jesus was in the picture. They thought Jesus was was painting this picture to tell them that he is the new Moses to come, to be the king, to be the shepherd. In fact, John's gospel gives us so much wonderful insight on this. Jesus, Jesus has to retreat again from them after the miracle. He's not ready to be their kind of king, so he retreats. They find him. The crowd finds him. When they get to him, Jesus confronts them. He says, you came looking for me because you ate your bread and you were filled. And they say to Jesus, Jesus, no, 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 no. This isn't just about our tummies getting full of bread. That's not what this is about. They basically said, we saw what you did, Jesus. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. God gave us bread. And you did that yesterday. We saw it. And then Jesus says, you know what, though, guys? You misunderstood who I was in that picture. I'm not the new Moses in that picture. I'm the bread. I'm the manna. That a man may eat and not die. I'm the bread. I'm the living bread. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is me. And in the feeding, do you remember what Jesus did with the bread? You put these gospel accounts together. He takes the bread. He lifts it up. He blesses And he breaks. See the picture. I'm the bread. I'm lifted up. And the way I bless and give life, I'm broken. And I don't think they saw it. But I want us to see how Jesus blesses, how he gives life to the world. It's by being broken. In fact, think about bread. Think about any kind of food that you eat. You don't get the life and the sustenance from it by just looking at it or smelling it. You have to eat it. And to eat it, you have to crush it. And you have to chew it. And you have to break it into all these little pieces so it can go into your body and give you life. It's either the bread or it's you. Both bread and you can't remain whole. If the bread is taken in and crushed and broken, it it will make you whole and it will give you life. In the same way, Jesus says, I am bread. Either he is crushed or we're going to be crushed. And see, this is the kind of revolution that Jesus came to bring to the world. In fact, I think it's the greatest revolutionary act that the world has ever seen. Because every revolutionary act begins with an act of violence. And so it is with Jesus. But instead of unleashing the violence, Jesus takes the violence. Because Jesus did not come to the world to bring the sword. He came to fall on the sword so that you and I could be spared the sword. And with Jesus, with this revolutionary, and and only with Jesus, it's not your life broken for me. It's my life, says Jesus, broken for you. And on that day, Jesus took the bread, 
And he lifted up, just like he'll do later in Luke's gospel at the Last Supper. Only this time, he'll take it and he'll say, this is my body, broken for you. And just like that day, and just like the Lord's Supper, that bread was not just stared at, it was not just looked at, it was passed out, and it was eaten. And this morning, I invite you to come and to eat the bread of life. But to eat it, I just feel like we can't just eat it. We have to do three things. First, we need to admit that we're hungry. As the deer pants for streams of, of, of living water, so my soul pants for you. We don't just come to this table flippantly. We come knowing we're hungry and our souls are hungry. That if we don't get this bread in us, we're going to die. And we come to this table not only hungry, but we declare to God, saying to you, you are what my soul needs right now. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water, we come to the table saying, God, you alone can satisfy my hunger. And then we come to the table and repent of all the substitutes. Jesus, in, in, in John's gospel, in this particular feeding of the 5,000. Jesus says, stop laboring for food that, that, that brings nothing, that spoils. And so when we come to this table, we think about all the food that we labor for, for that spoils, and we, we repent of it. We turn from it so that we can eat the real food that our souls need. Jesus said, my flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. And anyone who feeds on me will live. That's why we take communion at Crossroads. Because he is the bread. Lifted up. Broken. And by being broken, when we eat it and take it in, he blesses. He gives life. Let's pray. God, this morning I pray that you would do those things in our hearts because sometimes we just need a lot of your help. God, that you would show us our true spiritual hunger and our true spiritual thirst. And that you would show us, Lord, that the, the, the stuff of this world will never satisfied. I love that detail in our story today. It says they ate, they ate and were deeply satisfied. God, when we take you into the center of our being, when we take Christ and your gospel, the fact that you were broken for us, that you took the sword, so we're spared the sword. When we take this into the center of our being, it's going to change us and give us life. So in this time, God, may there be hunger, and may there be desire, and may there be reflection, and may there be confession, and may there be repentance. And as we do all of this, may we eat and be satisfied. In Jesus' name.